This morning in our selection from the Hebrew Scripture, we read from a historical document, the first book of the Kings, a book said to be a holy history of a holy people, history recounted from a spiritual vantage point with a theological agenda to promote. Our particular pericope this morning involves the great King Solomon, son of David, ruler of the United Kingdom, an exemplar of Israel's leadership at the height of her worldly greatness, that being about 10 centuries before the birth of Jesus. Throughout the ages, sacred history has revered and celebrated King Solomon, probably because he had the gift of wisdom, an ability to discern the Spirit's movement, great human insight and perspicacity, and his utilization of that holy gift in building a temple for the worship of God right at the heart of Israel's life. When wise King Solomon knew that the God of the universe, whose breadth and depth never could be contained in an earthly vessel or quartered by human hands, must nevertheless have a name and an address and a visible, audible, feelable, touchable, sensible, and beautiful presence in a particular place in time and space. If flesh and blood humanity, the likes of you and me, will ever be able to taste and see the goodness of the Lord. So Solomon constructs a lavish temple. He adorns it with worldly greatness and inspirited beauty. And from its description, it apparently was as awe-inspiring in its architecture and in its fabric as is Trinity Cathedral on Spring Street, Little Rock. Beautiful buildings are very important and they serve a great purpose. Let's keep them. And there Solomon ensconces the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies for Israel, the sacred law that binds God and his people in covenant. And Solomon pleads with God to listen to the prayers of those who come to the temple to venerate the law. And he even delineates for God the kinds of prayers that will undoubtedly travel from human lips to divine ears, most especially prayers from those seeking help in time of trouble, those in the clutch of transgression who beg for forgiveness, those at times of great famine or withering drought who implore God's rescue, those living through seasons when loss is pronounced and failure and defeat color the day even those who are foreigners and aliens who come to the temple as curiosity seekers, hoping they might find the one who is said to live there. Oh, the prayers that that Solomon lifts up, the kind he hopes God will listen to, seem so much like what we do on Sunday morning, the prayers of the people. Listen to a portion of what I would call Solomon's grandiloquent prayer. And he does it with such verve, such energy. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel. And he stretched forth his hands toward heaven. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on the earth beneath. Keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to thy servants who walk before thee with all their heart. 
But will you, O God, indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven could never contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord God. And hearken thou to the supplication of all thy people Israel when they pray toward this place. Yea, hear thou in heaven those who gather together in thy dwelling place. And when thou hearest, forgive in the sense of give forth. The construction of the great temple in Jerusalem and its use in Israel's history has become what I would call an archetype, a blueprint, an example of sacred structure ever since. The 20th century psychologist Carl Jung focused on archetype as an original model or type after which similar things are patterned throughout history. An archetype buried deep in the unconscious is often activated when crisis occurs and when the soul needs a sign from above or deep within to steady its path and go to the next phase. I saw this reality lived out. Let me shift gears a moment and apply Solomon's truth to some of the current events through which we live. On the 11th day of September 2001, the unthinkable, the unimaginable occurred, and it occurred to all of us no matter where we were. The dust fell on us all. Terrorists attacked our country. They destroyed our sense of impenetrability. They wrecked our notions of security. They caused many deaths and massive destruction, and the legacy still lives with us. I happened to be eyewitness to the events of the day at the site of the World Trade Center in New York City, a mere 150 yards from the church where I worked. And it was another Trinity church that lies at the heart of another great city. It was another Christian community bound by the Trinitarian reality that exists for a world of good just like this one. Next month on September the 16th and the 23rd, I want to share details of the day with the likes of you and to do so at the Dean's Foreman on Sunday, Sunday morning and to do so from a spiritual perspective, one that perhaps you haven't heard. But today, just a small piece of it as it corresponds to our reading from Hebrew Scripture. Early morning on a work day, a Tuesday morning, after getting out of the subway's number nine train at the corner of Rector and Greenwich, a friend from work greeted me with the news that a very small Cessna had veered off course and had hit the upper stories of the World Trade Center's South Tower. So we ran two blocks down the street to join the crowd which had gathered to gooseneck the accident. And there were so many of us, so many of us standing there, staring upright. Here came a second plane, this time a massive jetliner. It flew right over our heads at a speed of 586 miles an hour. It ran the building's second tower a thousand feet above us, which is not far at all. And it caused an explosion so massive that it sent all of lower Manhattan on a run for their lives. I ran a short distance into the office building of Trinity Church, where my office was located on the 24th floor. The rector, Dan Matthew, whom many of you know, 
caught me in the lobby of that building. And in no uncertain terms, he said, you're not going upstairs. Get yourself to the church across the street. Do something with that crowd of people who are pouring into the building. The organist was standing with me, and he and I both said, what shall we do, Dr. Matthews? He said, just get there and do it now. Well, the organist Owen Burdick and I did as Father Matthews directed, and there we were for the next 50 minutes. 50 minutes until that dreadful moment when the first tower imploded and fell to the ground. There, Owen and I carried out an extemporaneous service of prayers, readings from Holy Scripture, and hymns from the 1982 hymnal for this ragtag collection of anyone and everyone who had entered an old church that looks like a church, and that's really important here, seeking the very thing that the church has to offer in abundance when she is at her best. And what does she offer us when she is at her best? Safety, security, serenity, solace, sanctuary, succor, and a word, salvation, rescue. At that God-awful moment in time when the sky had fallen on our heads and the rug had been pulled out from beneath us. And what a group we were. Not your regular church crowd. So diverse, so colorful, so emotionally distraught that we gave new meaning to the word eclectic. Heterogeneous, broad, diverse, Christians, Sikhs, Hindus, Muslims, Zoroastrians, agnostics, atheists, even Episcopalians. A disparate assembly gathered under one roof, most of them on their knees, all utterly dependent, at least for that second, on the grace of God, on the grace which could lead us at least to the next step. When I think of this, I always think of James Joyce's alleged definition of the Catholic Church as he defines it in Finnegan's Wake. Someone said, what is the Catholic Church, the universal church? And he said, here comes everybody. And indeed, everybody came. Of course they came. They were frightened out of their wits. They were scared beyond their imaginings. And here stood a church with an open door. The unconscious, you know, holds the original pattern. The archetype is triggered at times of great crisis. Of all the buildings on Wall Street that one could have chosen for a reprieve from disaster, the church was the place to go. Of course it was. Furthermore, this church was an Episcopal church. It had a sign out front that said, the Episcopal church welcomes you. Hospitality being our middle name. Hospitality being the creation of a warm and open space for all strangers, no matter who they are, to come in, to sit down. And as the psalmist says, to be still and to know that God is God. We did just as Solomon imagined we would do when the human condition is at that critical point of imploring divine assistance. We prayed to God for deliverance. We asked God for forgiveness. We sang in praise. We listened to word. And we embraced a peculiar kind of peace that so often, that so often occurs in the beauty of holiness. And I would add to that in the holiness of beauty. In that church, as in all churches, the sacred and the otherworldly word of God often intersects the humdrum mundane lives of those who hear it. 
How many times have you come into a place like this and you've noticed a word from the liturgy that suddenly stands out? Or you heard a phrase from a sermon that illuminates what's happening? Or you've spotted a visual message from a sliver of stained glass that spoke to you with directness and urgency at just the place where you're hoping to be touched. Quick blips, I call them, that contain just the very thing we need to hear at a particular moment in time. The synchronicity in a temple, in a house of worship, in a church dedicated to the glory of God can be uncanny. The mystics used to call it the sacrament of the present moment. Picture this. Here was that most eclectic group of worshipers gathered together in an old neo-Gothic sandstone church house right at the edge of unimaginable destruction. The sky had darkened outside to the point of blackness. Sirens roared everywhere the ear could hear. Fear was at such a pitch that only assurance from above, not some kind of mawkish reassurance, only spiritual assistance from above could help. I was scrambling through the hymnal looking for songs and devotions and praise that we could all sing. I know the hymnal so well I can say to the congregation almost immediately, turn to page 680 and there's a hymn we need to be singing. Remember the wartime movie, Ms. Miniver with Greer Garson? That's what was going on in my head. Memories are so important at times like these. I recalled images of a church in England, 1944, the movie, that had been bombed and partially destroyed. And the white-haired vicar climbs the stairs of the pulpit, and he directs the congregation to sing, Oh God, our help in ages past. An Anglican hymn. We've been doing it for years. And so I did it. In that context of darkening sky and flickering electricity, fear ascending and death impending, we sang the first verse of that old hymn and an utterly amazing spiritual awakening occurred in our midst. Think of the words here. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Well, the congregation gasped audibly when word intersected the vent. Our shelter from the stormy blast. Oh, my God, we're here. We've entered our eternal home no matter what's to befall us at times later. You know the sound that we often make when a connection like that is realized, when interior realities correspond to what's going on and the word of God intersects? It's an ah sound. It's an oh. It's the spirit of, it's the spirit of God working within us in what St. Paul describes as sighs and groans too deep for words. And where in the world would you ever experience such a thing if not in a temple dedicated to the glory of God and housing God's holy presence? A church to wit, a name and an address in each community where the divine has agreed, thanks in part to Solomon's prayerful negotiations, to be present. A place where song, sacrament, sermon, and sacred word all conspire to rocket you and me to a fourth dimension where we can live through the next phase, whatever it is. Coincidence, if there be such a thing, happened again moments later as events worsened outside the church's door, as the sky blackened 
as ash began to enter the church and fall on the congregation. I turned to the eighth chapter of St. Paul's epistle to the Romans to read those amazing words of consolation that we use in our tradition almost invariably at funerals. In a moment of exultation, Paul writes, I am absolutely convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And a sound went up like you've never heard in all your life. It was, ah, oh, sighs and groans too deep for words. A coincidence, or perhaps a better word would be God incidence. Oh, I have so much to say on these matters about the redemptive love of God and its work among us, especially when the going gets so tough. What is redemption? God bringing light out of darkness, life out of death, joy out of suffering. And it happens almost simultaneously sometimes in our lives. But as for now, as we near the anniversary of 9-11, and I can't believe it's been 17 years, as we continue to trudge through this dispiriting and often, often demoralizing time of seeing our world, our nation, and the church go through a period of upheaval, maybe it's cleansing, and as we wonder at times if the sky is falling and if the rug is being pulled out from under us, I am one who wants to stay close to the church, and I would urge you to do same. And I say that from good experience. Go to the temple and go often. Hear the word, receive the sacrament, and do so with regularity. Say your prayers, sing your witness. It's the only place on earth where the reality of redemption is given to us in technicolor, where serendipities and consolations are commonplace, where grace is unmerited and graceful events abound, and they take on almost an ordinary character where hospitality and beauty become our middle name and all occurring among such an eclectic collection of everybody come, everybody coming to witness this redemptive hand of God who was forever and a day bringing good out of evil, life out of death, light out of darkness, and joy out of suffering. We pray in the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.